The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. How do we move things forward, right? Because I feel like the day that you stop thinking about how to improve things is the day that the engineer inside dies. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Liz Zettel, who holds an associate's degree in chemistry, a bachelor's degree in biomedical engineering, and an MBA. Uh, Liz spent her career in biotechnology and medical devices and has particular expertise in project management, automation, operations, design controls, mentoring, R&D, team building, and a bunch of other stuff, but... Uh, Suffice to say, she she has a, a vast array of different kinds of experiences, and I'm super excited to talk to her on the podcast today. So, Liz, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Erin. I'm happy to be here. I will ask you the same question I ask everyone to get started, which is, how did you decide to become an engineer? Oh, that's a really good question, because I never, ever thought of becoming an engineer. I... um. I actually, like in high school, I was thinking about becoming an interior designer because my a friend in high school was going to do that. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun. And so I got state certified in interior design. And Oh, wow. And, um, and then um, I was actually quite lucky. I um, was in a calculus class and my um, teacher um, is Mr. Okison. Um, he'd said, hey, you guys should like check out this engineering camp. They have one up at Utah State. And I immediately, like growing up, I was quite poor. And I immediately thought, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to afford that. And I feel like he read my mind because the next thing he said was, and if you can't afford it, let me know because they have scholarships. And so I thought, oh, okay, cool. You know, that that nice. could be neat. And so I talked with Mr. Okuson after class and he set me up and I got the scholarship and I attended the engineering camp up at Utah state. And they, um, they have you like fill out a whole list of questions to see what you're interested in. And I got put in the, the biological group. And so we spent the week going through all these different presentations. And some of them I thought like, Oh my God, this is so boring. Like <laughs> I would never want to do that. But there was one where we isolated the DNA of a wheat germ. And I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, <laughs> this is so incredible. I can't, like, I can't believe you can see DNA. Like, this is amazing. And, um, and that little spark was, was what I needed to put me on the path. Um, so I started looking um, at biotechnology and started taking biotechnology classes in high school. And then I, like, really thought that was pretty neat. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to get a a bachelor's in biomedical engineering. And, and that's what I did. So um, thank you to Mr. Oaks. I'm, I'm so happy I became an engineer and I'm so grateful. I'm not a interior designer today. <laughs> no offense to so interior designers. They're great too. That, yeah. That's a fascinating story. So growing up, uh, apparently with not a whole lot of money, did, did you grow up kind of not expecting to go to college? 
No, I, I, in fact, was the opposite. I think oh, okay. I, I had that thought that I was going to go to school. So I worked really, really hard in high school. And I mean, I, I worked, um, I started working when I was like 11 and just oh, kept wow. working like all through my adolescence. And then um, like in high school, I grew up in Arizona and they had, you know, an option where if, if you were in the top 10% of your high school, they'd give you a free ride to the, the in-state colleges. And so I was like, I'm going to do that. And so I, <laughs> I worked really hard. And then I moved up to Utah and, and they didn't have that same thing, but um, I've also been very fortunate. Um, I worked all through school to pay for school and I was able to get some scholarships along the way. So nice. that's how what, I made what it. What was your first job when you were 11 years old? Uh, I cleaned houses. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Okay, this is this is getting a little trippy here. So I worked, uh, I wasn't 11, I think I was uh, 12, 13, 14, I don't know, a few years older than you. But my first job was cleaning classrooms, oh. <laughs> um, which is kind of an analog. And I, I didn't grow up in Arizona, but I, I, I live in Arizona now. Oh, I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize that you had grown up here. What part of Arizona were you in? I um I mostly grew up in Chandler, which is okay. just outside of Phoenix there. Yeah. One of our engineers lives in Chandler. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm going to bounce around here a little okay. bit and ask some, some different questions back and forth. Um, so you, you are an engineer now and you've worked as an engineer for, uh, what, like 15 years yes. plus, something like yes, that? Yes, it, it, it starts coming by pretty quick. Yeah, it's been about <laughs> um, 15 years now. Yeah, yeah. I turned uh, I turned forty one last year, and I couldn't believe it. You know, like, how did this happen? I didn't think I would ever be forty one years old. Um, anyway, the question I was going to ask was: You spent uh, some time in in surgical suites, watching the surgeons perform procedures and, and use devices. What uh, what insights have you gained, or can one gain in that environment that that you don't necessarily see sitting in a cubicle in front of a CAD box? Oh, uh, there is so much you gain from interacting. In this case, our our customers. Um, I did a lot of work on ethnographic studies, which is the fancy word for like you watch people and you see what they do, and um, and then you figure out like what you need to fix to make things better for them. And so um, we'd spend a lot of time in surgical suites watching procedures. Um, and really finding out more how our devices were used. So you typically have like your instructions for use, which are very long and, you know, get reviewed by all of our regulatory bodies. And you go to procedures and you realize clinicians aren't, aren't following steps one, two, three, four through 35. They're doing things differently throughout the procedure to make it best fit for that patient or um, be a better um way to place a device for them. And so, um, you know, observing is really important, right? It's that a kind of like an act of listening is really important where you really just get that feedback that you're missing when you're in your cube all by yourself, like working on your mini tab <laughs> statistical <laughs> review. Um, so it was really, really interesting. Um, and I really recommend it, right? You um, you learn so much. And, it, and I think the other neat thing in terms of product development is it opens the doors for like other things that you can think of to make better that you would have never even considered if you hadn't stepped a, a foot into the room. Have you ever got frustrated with one of your customers? Um, well, I suppose there's 
different customers and different communication styles. And sometimes the communication styles, you know, if it's not the same way that you communicate, that could be frustrating. Um, so yeah, I've definitely had some opportunities um, to improve communication with our customers. What uh, What are some of your preferred methods of communicating? How, how do you even know if someone's communication method is different than yours? Like what, what are the cues that you use to pick up on? <laughs> well, if they start to get frustrated, that's pretty a pretty good indication <laughs> that your communication isn't working well, right? If, if And it's like, if you feel like you're going in circles, like you're saying the same thing over and over and like this person just isn't getting it, it's probably means you're saying different things and you just don't understand. So when I, I focus on communication, I really try to be aware of different communication styles. So some people are very visual. So having diagrams and, and engineers in particular tend to be quite visual. So having a diagram that you can point to where you can show other tolerances, like walk people through is really helpful. Um, and then I always try to, you know, look at the target audience and figure out, is this a technical person where I can, you know, just talk with them about the engineering specs or do I need to kind of you know, I, I always pretend like I'm telling a story to someone like, here's where we start. And this is why this is important. And they're like, oh, yeah, I get it. Like, so um, just kind of depends on on your audience. Um, and uh, communication is very important for engineers. It's probably the area where we really struggle the most. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting. I've um, I've interviewed probably more than 60 engineers at this point oh, wow. of the show. And I often ask, what are, what are some of the most important um, skills or traits that engineers need to have? And one of the most common ones is not the technical stuff, it's communication, being able to talk with people. Uh, and I think you're right, like as engineers, some of us anyway, right? We like to sit in our cube and kind of be by ourselves and, mm -hmm. and, uh, can struggle. But I think, I think that should be a course that's offered in the engineering curriculum is like how to communicate with other peoples. That would be so helpful. Like, how do you look someone in the eye? <laughs> how yeah. do you say, hi, <laughs> I'm Bob in the hallway? <laughs> you know, how do you engage in a conversation where you aren't a dick, right? Like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities. And that's really where, you know, you see people struggle. Like you can have, you know, I've met very brilliant engineers, like, and, and we think about like, there's so many different areas of engineering and so many different strengths. And there's folks that I've met that are just like, brilliant, right? They think of all of these amazing things, but like they are not nice people and yeah. people don't like to work with them and it makes a difference in their career. It, it makes a so. huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. always be nice. That's my rule. <laughs> That's a great rule. Well, like I said, I'm going to, I'm kind of bouncing around here a little bit. Um, what, what have been some of the most commonly used or, or maybe just most useful DFM pro tips. So design for manufacturability pro tips that you've picked up over the years. Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I think one of the things that I found to be most helpful in my career, I started out as a research and development engineer working on new products, which was a lot of fun, right? But one of the pieces that I missed early in my career is the value and importance of sitting on the manufacturing floor. And there was one um, new product that I was working on um, that required a very um, specific visual inspection to make sure the product was properly made. 
And it turned out on my team, I was <laughs> one of the engineers that had like the best eyesight. So um, <laughs> I got to sit for a month on the manufacturing floor building this device that I had designed. And I realized so quickly um, how much improvement I could make for those poor <laughs> folks on the manufacturing floor. There was um, one process in particular that like after I, after I worked out there, I, I just really was so apologetic to the production team for giving this to them. But it was, um, uh, we had a recess in the top of this component that we need to press fit uh, another component into. And then it would go through an ultrasonic welding process that would join it together. And, you know, we hadn't really planned on this in the project, to be fair. But um, what we gave the production operators was a screwdriver to like, <laughs> knock this <laughs> thing in. And after like, a couple of weeks, you know, I'm sitting out on the floor inspecting these parts every day, talking with the operators, learning the processes that much better. They're like, can you do something else? Like my wrist really hurts. Oh. So, you know, design for manufacturing is so, so important. And really, you know, beyond, beyond that piece, right? Making tools that work for people is so helpful. But um, the other thing that I've learned through my career is really understanding your tolerance stack ups, right? So we get so excited, like you're making your AutoCAD file and like your specifications, and you're like, yeah, 5,000 tolerance, that sounds great. And then like you get into like the real world and you're like, oh, geez, like that's like, maybe that's too tight or, oh goodness, like in some cases that's, that's much bigger than what we need. Um, and so really understanding those tolerance stackups and testing your minimum and maximum material conditions throughout the process is so helpful. And then it really gets into like yield improvements and making things better for, you know, our friends on the manufacturing floor. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think it's fairly easy to keep in mind design for manufacturability as you're designing a part. If you're doing some kind of injection molded part, you're putting draft on and you're making sure there aren't too many side actions or maybe no side actions. Anyway, you're keeping these things in mind. Um, but then design, design for assembly, I think sometimes gets overlooked. It's, in my opinion, it's even easier to overlook design for assembly than it is for uh, design for manufacturing processes anyway. Yeah, there's a lot that can go wrong if you aren't really looking at that big picture view and really like keeping that in mind and talking with your colleagues across that full cross-functional team as you go through the process. Because what I found is, you know, the people that are working the floor are the ones that usually have like the best insights over what needs to be fixed to make it better. So for sure, you know, and yeah. that goes back to that communication piece, right? Like being open to feedback and open to different viewpoints really helps you become that much better of an engineer and make that much better of a product for your customer. Yeah. And going, going back, just one more nail in the coffin here. There are tools in CAD to look at, uh, like, design for injection molding, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can run some analyses and it'll show you, oh, there's no draft on this surface or, or whatever. But there's no, not really a tool to check for design for assembly. That is more or less up to the imagination of the engineer. <laughs> yeah. And so hopefully there's some checks, you know, after it's designed that you can go through. Um, uh, speaking of, of design, it, it seems that design is, is kind of, always the sexy part of product development, right? It's where most engineers really enjoy uh, 
spending their time and, and focusing. Um, but the design of the, the new product is only one small part of the overall development. Uh, there are all these kind of supporting ancillary services outside of just the, the design aspect. What are, what are uh, some of these less sexy activities that need to happen? Oh, I want to call them less sexy. I think it just, you know, it's finding the right fit for you, right? Where you... Um, really resonate with the work that's happening and you're excited, like, you know, skipping into work every day to be like, yes, I get to work on this, right? Um, you know, I think one of the areas that I'm working in now is manufacturing transfers, which is more, you might call it on the, the sustaining side of things. But that has been really fun um, and very different than NPI where, um, you know, like our team, I, I like to think that they're actually enjoying this work more than an NPI because with transfers, um, you know, in transfers um, with our current team, we are working on every single product line. And so with with R&D engineers or manufacturing engineers, you typically have like one process, one product that you're focused on. Um, And our team, we get to look at like all of them, which is really pretty neat because then you learn so much more, right? We're working on um, extrusions, lamination, catheters, um, stents, like all sorts of things. And, and then like we have to transfer, you know, between current suppliers and new suppliers and it's, it's, you know, you have specs, but it's, it's almost harder than an MPI because those specs that, you know, Bob came up with 20 years ago might not be that great. And 99% of the time they're, they're not that great. And so we have to not only like figure out what those missing specs are or what that target performance range actually is. Um, and then we have to figure out how to make it with a new supplier. So I think there's a lot of um, sexy areas of engineering and it's just finding like, what's the right path for you and what makes you excited to get up and like solve that next problem in the day. I think you're probably right. It, it comes down to the personality of the individual. Like I, for me, I love design. That's the fun part. Other, uh, I would not want to spend my time doing documentation, but I know <laughs> other people who legitimately love documentation, like putting together a manufacturing drawing. It's this, this almost meditative <laughs> event where they're so careful about making sure all the dimensions are lining up and it's, it's an art form for them. So mm-hmm. I guess it does come down to just what, what you like, you know. Your, your particular style. I like to um, say, you do you, right? There you go. You do you, exactly. What What is your favorite part of the new product development process? I I really love the part where you make an impact, right? Um, I've never been a person that could make a widget and just feel like good. Um, I really enjoy making products that make a very positive improvement in someone's lives. Um, and so the products that I've worked on are are really that. And actually in my current role, the products that we work on, like I know every day I'm coming into work, um, the products that I am working on save someone's life. And chances are very high that one day, one of my family members, one of my friends, one of my colleagues is gonna use one of those devices to really bring back their their quality of life um, and what they can do in terms of their functionality after a, a stroke. So it's really pretty neat. That's that's kind of the fun part is like getting it out to the market and then really seeing that impact that it has. 
Yeah. Have you had opportunities to speak with patients that have used products that you've designed? Yes, yes. And and it is pretty neat. Um, my first job as an R&D engineer was designing port catheter devices for long-term vascular access. And what that means is they'd implant this device and it would basically be used for patients who needed long-term chemotherapy or for like little kiddos that had short gut syndrome and needed to get their TPN, their nutrients through a device. And, um, and it's really pretty neat. Like I was able to go to um, infusion sites and talk with the, the patients that had the port and they'd show you the port. You can see it. Um, I've been at Costco where I, um, just because I work in that field, I, I know what a port looks like right off the bat. And I could tell like the lady that was, you know, three people ahead of me in line had one of the devices that I had worked on. Um, and I had a, you know, one of my, um, colleagues at work say, Hey, my mom just got one of the devices that you used and like, thank you. Right. It's, it's really pretty neat. So, so yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I suppose like a lot of engineers, like your work might just kind of like go off and then you never get to see it again. But um, I have been very fortunate. I get to see, you know, that, that impact and, and how much improvement it brings to patients. And that's really, really neat and very fulfilling. Yeah. How rewarding. Well, I'm going to take a, a real short break here and uh, share with the listeners that uh, we have a, a new website, actually. TeamPipeline.us is now where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other uh, product engineering teams who need turnkey custom test fixtures or automated equipment to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. And we're speaking with Liz Zattel today. Um, you have managed several teams, and I wondered, as a project manager, how can the engineering team make your life easier? Oh, it's, that's an interesting question, Aaron. Um, you know, working as a project manager or even as a manager of an engineer's, I think it it always comes back to communication. Um, that's where things really fall apart quickly. <laughs> and, and you know, as a project manager, you're kind of the person that like the glue that's like reaching across all these cross-functional teams to take into consideration all of these different perspectives and data, and then you know come together and find that path forward. And the the moments where it's been like the most kind of difficult or trying is like when the engineers aren't getting along well and they need mm-hmm. help navigating those, you know, sometimes difficult situations and, you know, finding that path forward where they can still, you know, be very collaborative and feel like they're heard and, and contribute to that solution. So communication is so important that that is really important. <laughs> Always comes back to communication, doesn't it? It is, it is a core foundation. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, a, a, another one of your specialties is mentoring. Yeah. Um, can you share uh, some some granular details about how or about the structure of of your mentoring relationships with mentees? Well, I, I've um, I've had both informal and formal mentorship relationships. So actually, I just got off a call setting off the the next round of um, mentorship at Stryker, where I work. And um, I'm very excited about that. And that's a formal program, right? So we have 
Um, we send out questionnaires to find out what people need feedback on or support in, what they're interested in. And then we pair up a mentor based on those interests. And they, you know, fill out a charter of what things they want insights on. And then, you know, we send them off onto their merry way and you, you know, work with your mentor to um, figure out your path forward. And then I also, um, so I, so I have mentors through that formal type of program, but I also have, you know, mentees that I have informally where, you know, you're just like chatting with, you know, Sarah across the hall and you're like, Hey, so how's it going? They're like, well, it's great, but I'm just not sure what I'm going to do with my career. You're like, Oh, well, <laughs> let's chat. Like, let's talk some more. And, and, you know, you just kind of keep chatting and, you know, a year goes by and now you've got like a really uh, good friend and someone that you've helped kind of grow in their career, um, which can really be a lot of fun too. So, so I, um, I work in both, both types of mentorship there, Aaron. And I think that's super rewarding as well, right? Like the products that you develop, they help people. Obviously that's rewarding, but being able to mentor someone and, and help them in their career and in their life, that's got to be super rewarding as well. It's so helpful. And I think in my career, I had so many people that helped me along the way to become successful where I am today. And for myself, I always think, you know, I, I try to reflect back and, you know, really just pay it forward um, to, to make up for all of that support that I had that helped me become who I am today and get me to where I am. And so, you know, paying it forward is, is a really important um, thing for me to do. For sure. Um, you had a really interesting role back in 2005, which was calf sitter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> tell, tell me that more about that. That was very interesting. <laughs> I don't, I shouldn't have gotten the job. Uh, I, I, I was, um, my, my family was allergic to animals, so I never had any pets growing up. And this job was, um, monitoring rabbits and sheep, um, and pigs through um, various um, studies for medical devices. And, and it was crazy, right? Like I would work these really peculiar shifts because I also had other jobs that I'd work during more normal shifts. So I'd, I'd be up in this like old hospital at like 10 o'clock at night, like watching over the sheep, monitoring their hematocrit levels and like, um, you know, yeah, that was a very interesting job. I found out, Erin, I was allergic to albino rabbits. Very allergic. <laughs> albino rabbits. Wow, that is so yes. specific. Yes. Um, they were doing a, a wound care study on the rabbits. And even like just handling them for a minute um, to give them their medication, I, I broke out in hives. And I realized really? I was very oh allergic. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And then I also found out sheep are crazy. <laughs> we had this one sheep. And sheep typically, like um, the, the studies that we were doing were on stents, cardiovascular stents. So they would implant these stents in the sheep and they would monitor, you know, the reaction if you had too much clotting or whatnot. And, um, and then they would do necrosis studies after the implant had been in place to see what impact it had on the tissue. And sheep, you know, typically, you know, don't really like people. So they just kind of like stay away from you. And, um, you know, I went in one day and there were like, there was this sheep that was very aggressive and, really? um, yes. And it turned the other sheep to become <laughs> very aggressive. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I had a flash, like one day I went into like the pen to like monitor their temperature and feed them. And, 
And uh, a sheep came up and like immediately had butted the shovel I had. And I was like, oh, well, this is like different than usual. A little concerning. And then another sheep came up and like my life flashed before my eyes. Like, am I going to die in here? Like trampled by these sheep? Yeah. I I got out. And and before I'd gone in, I noticed that, you know, there was like reinforced glass on the outside of the pen that had been cracked. You know, like kind of fractured in a few places. And I called my boss right after this. And I was like, hey, you know what? I'm here by myself. I'm worried I'm going to die oh, <laughs> alone man. with these sheep. Is, can you just like, you know, have someone come in and like pull this, this other equipment yeah. out when I get in? She's like, sure, no problem. And she's like, yeah, they've been headbutting the glass. So that's why it's broken. I was like, oh, oh like, gosh. that would be so <laughs> helpful to know. So yeah, that yeah. was a very interesting job for sure. Oh, my goodness. You're going to see like, you know, how devices, you know, that, um, that aspect where they do animal testing to try to help and mitigate the risk um, yeah. in devices that they go forward. So it was a really interesting job for sure. Did uh, did you guys ever have like, I don't know, folks from PETA outside protesting, no animal no. testing, anything like that? No. No, no, fortunately not. No. Uh, that has to, I don't know, be a, a little uncomfortable. I've done some animal testing in the past and don't get me wrong. I'm say, I'm not saying that we we shouldn't do animal testing to mitigate the risk for humans, uh, but like it it weighs on your mind a little bit. At least it did for me. You know, like this animal's a a living creature. We want to treat it well. Like how how do you I don't know how do you get into the right mental uh, state of mind just kind of to deal with that. Um, myself, I've I've had a few um, experiences with animal testing, and one in particular. Um, really was difficult for me. It was sacrificing mice. We do these studies to uh, inject radio-labeled anandamide to see um, where it went in the brain. And, and anandamide is a naturally occurring hormone that's similar to THC and marijuana. So they were like, hey, if we can like, you know, figure out how to manage the, um, you know, the breakdown of this hormone, like we could use this as a, an alternative to marijuana, right? This was like, yeah. gosh, a really long time ago, like 17 years ago. And um, and so we did these studies and we injected mice and then we had to sacrifice the mice and do regional brain dissections. And, and I felt so bad. I became a vegetarian and was a vegetarian for a long time after um, just to try to like create a balance in my mind. So yeah, I did. Yeah. I did feel poorly and I had to you know, make amends through what I, what I could do to, to, you know, find that right balance in the world. Yeah. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. That was the kind of a personal thing. I appreciate the, the candor there. Um, let's see, we, we've already talked about this to, to some extent. Uh, the, oh, what are the, the, the top two or three skills that you think engineers should have? Communication has already come up many times. Beyond that, what else do you think is really important for an engineer uh, to have in, as far as skills? Um, being open-minded. Hmm. Sometimes as engineers, we have this thought like, I'm right, you're wrong. <laughs> Let me prove to you how wrong you are. <laughs> and and I find like the folks that have that mentality are usually wrong, uh, you know? And and um, and I think the, the difference is 
you know, if you can take a step back and not become defensive, um, if someone says like, no, your, your idea is bad, my idea is better, right? You're like, oh, well, hold on, Sally, like, <laughs> my idea is better, your <laughs> idea is bad, right? If you just kind of like take a step back and kind of re- remove that defensiveness that can be so easy to kind of fall into and you just think, well, tell me more, <laughs> right? Um, I found that you learn, you learn a lot and it actually kind of changes your your frame of, of reference a bit. And, and where I found people that are the most open and exploring, right? It really changes the outcomes in a very positive way. And sometimes I'll work with engineers that, you know, change, is really a struggle for, and it can be for a lot of people, right? It's really hard to change. It's, we find like our places that we're comfortable and like your engineer that like really likes making his spreadsheets and the diagrams and whatnot. And, and it can be hard to move outside your comfort zone. So sometimes I'll, I'll like tell, tell folks like, Hey, you know, I reserve the right to become a better engineer. And I reserve that right for you too. So let's like be creative. And like, I know it's going to make you feel uncomfortable, but like, what if we did blah, 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 right? And just kind of explore that space, right? Just, 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 you know, come along with me. Let's like go out and swim a little, kind of test the water, see what we can do here. And, and it is really neat, like when you kind of establish uh, an environment where people feel safe um, to bring up ideas and you encourage that, um, it's really pretty neat to see what ideas come out of it. Whereas if you just were like, okay, well, let's just keep doing what we've always done. <laughs> then, yeah. uh, you, you wouldn't have those really neat outcomes that you can get to. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and it comes back to communication, I think, right? So it's kind of a cheater answer because it's still communication, but we'll, we'll, we'll give you a pass on it. And there was a third one, right? Yes. Um, I think technical competence is also important. And one thing that people forget is seeing that big picture view. And this was, you know, one of the lessons I had learned um, where I was so focused on my rationales for the new products that I didn't always spend the time going down to the manufacturing floor to see how things were made. And so one of the things, and that's uh, one of the things that's really stayed with me over time is you need to like see your products right now with like transfers, for example, right? I can look at specs on a paper and that's fantastic. But having that device in your hand creates a much better picture and understanding of what you need to do. And so that's that's one area that I always um, try myself to uh, focus on is, is getting down, seeing how things are made, understanding that full um, life cycle of the product and exploring all of those areas and just becoming that much more educated as a result. Yeah. And speaking of becoming educated, I think of uh, your formal education, right? College, university, that's, that's the start, right? That's not the end of your educa- engineering education. Um, in, in fact, uh, I don't know. I've always felt like I was not terribly, um, useful to the, the company I first worked for, like as a very green engineer. I had this foundation, but not a lot of practical knowledge. And that's all stuff that you learn on the job. What what are some ways that you've found to continue your education as you progress through your engineering career, whether it's, you know, technical or soft skills or all of the above? I I try um, 
to make a practice of introducing myself to everyone that I meet. And as an introvert, right, and a lot of engineers are introverts, it can be really hard, right? Like, oh, it's someone new. Goodness. Um, I'm having a hard time believing that you're an introvert. You just seem so like bubbly and full of life and easy to talk to. It's it is. I actually had this same conversation with my mentee just a couple weeks ago. She's like, I don't believe it. I'm like, it's true. And it's actually, um, it's something that I realized early on in my engineering career that the more that I reached out to people um, and got to know them, it kind of opened up avenues that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And so it was something that I, at the beginning of my career, I had to like tell myself, and this is where I'd call myself Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth, like you need to like go introduce yourself to everyone that you meet and chat with them, right? And because I've done it so much, it's it's not something I have to tell myself to do anymore. And and it's become kind of fun for me to learn more about other people. And I oftentimes learn about related projects because I'm like, I'll go up uh, you know, to Steve. Hey Steve. Welcome to the company. Like, what, what are you working on? Oh, you've got that. Oh, tell me more about your project. And before I know it, like, I realize, hey, we're working on one of those same components. Oh, you saw a yield loss issue. Oh, well, tell me more, right? And it just kind of opens up those um, additional, you know, avenues for you to a meet someone new, understand and learn about someone does, and then just become that much better as a result. So yes, I am an introvert, but I don't always seem like one. Well, if you say so, I'm not sure I buy it, but (laughs) it's like a habit, right? You said that you no longer have to tell yourself, Elizabeth, go talk to this new person. It's it's a habit at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if, If you could speak with one famous engineer, whether it's someone alive today or in the past, who, who do you think it would be? Oh, that's, I I haven't ever really thought about that. You can use the word engineer. You can define that loosely. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to think about that one, Aaron. Fair enough. Well, maybe we'll come back to it. If you don't think of anything, that's fine too. Um, well, okay. I have another question. Mm-hmm. I read that you once launched a new product in 53 days. Yes. I have to know how you did that because that's like, that's unheard of. And actually, you know, my friend Martha, I think she, her record, and maybe she'll have to tell me if I've got this right, was 55 days. That's, again, unheard of. How is that even possible? A lot of communication. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> using. It um, comes back to communication. You know what? It, it, it all comes back to relationships, Aaron. Um, how you treat people makes a difference in how much they want to work with you. And um, on that particular project that I had, it was a really, um, a really important project. We had to make a customized um, kit for a very, you know, important um, clinician that we were working with. And, you know, the VP of the company, right, he's like, hey, you know, Dr. So-and-so needs this in February. It was like December. I was like, oh, okay. Well, we got to get going then, right? Um, and and I was able to do it um, for a few things. A, it was a line extension. So it wasn't starting something all from scratch, um, but it was really strategically sitting down and looking at how you could leverage all of the information that we had to make the project most effective 
Um, and then it all came down to relationships too, right? Where I could call up, you know, the person in regulatory or um, the folks in quality and say, hey, you know, this is a really important project. We have to get this out. Like this is the target that we had. And um, this is why it's so important. And when you take the time to explain to someone, you know, hey, you say hi, <laughs> you know, hi, Danielle, how are you? Okay, so I need your help. Is this something you can help me with? Um, that makes a huge difference. And then explaining why it's important makes a huge difference. Um, and it and running shoes. I actually like kept a pair of like Nikes under my desk. So I would literally like run through the building to like really? meet deadlines. Yeah. To get, the, wow. get things shipped out or like get things signed. Like I just remember that like one day I was like, I am really like running here. Like that and is I have next to. level. That, yeah. is, that is incredible dedication right there. And Using it, running it, shoes. Yeah. So you could run back and forth throughout the building to make yeah. deadlines. Got, got my steps that day. Um, but then those relationships, right? So we had people like, um, our auditor, Michelle, um, she's so nice. Uh, I talked with Michelle and it usually took, you know, three days to perform a very detailed audit to make sure everything was in compliance with our standards and, you know, our FDA guidelines and all of that. And I remember I, I went up to Michelle, I was like, hey, Michelle, how are you? <laughs> like, so I, we have this project we're trying to get done for, you know, this really important doctor. And can you help me like squeeze in the audit? Like, I know you probably have like a million things. She's like, well, actually, I had some free time this afternoon. Why don't you bring it by? I was like, oh, nice. great. And she cranked it out that afternoon. Wow. Um, and I can tell you, she would not have done that for me if I was not, you know, nice to her and like built that relationship over time. Um, so thanks, Michelle. She she really helped <laughs> and all the other folks along the way, too. So that is a, a huge point And I think so easy to overlook. Being nice, right? How important that is. Just being nice to people. I, I love that you said that. Um, our core value number one at Pipeline is treat our customers well, treat our team members better. Oh. <laughs> and it's all about like treating our team members really, really well. And we don't always live up to it, but I like to think that usually we do. And that's a big deal, right? In terms of cohesion with your team um, and just being overall more productive, it's so much more enjoyable and productive to work with nice people. I remember in, in college, I don't know that this is a, a direct example, but it was interesting. I had a project um, as, as an engineering student to, I had to make this widget, this thing, and I didn't have the the skills at the time to go out into the machine shop and machine it myself. And so we had at the university a machine shop with, you know, full-time machinists that actually worked there to support student projects. And so I went in and said, hey, I'm trying to make this thing and I'm supposed to talk to you guys and see if you can help me out. And they're like, yeah, we can do it, but it's going to cost, you know, it's, it's going to be like three weeks. And um, there was some cost associated with, I don't remember what that was, but they're like, it's going to be three weeks or, and I said, why? Well, I need it like in a week. And they're like, no, we can't do that. Forget about it. So I thought, well, hmm, I could just walk away, but what else, what else might I try here? So I went and bought, bought a big box of donuts. I was just thinking that. <laughs> like, will and these I, donuts yeah. help? <laughs> exactly. And I went back and I was like, hey, I know you guys are going to take three weeks. I get it. You're super busy, but here's this box of donuts. And if it's possible to do it a little bit quicker, that would be awesome. But hey, no worries. I know that your schedule is whatever it is. And guess how quickly they got it to me? It was within a week. So that was a pretty cool experience. 
Yeah, it's actually, you know, that's something food goes a long way. Um, oh, totally. We actually, yeah. We had a supplier that we just got cookies shipped to, like in Ireland um, with COVID, right? Like all the bakeries shut down in Ireland because they're, you know, much more stringent there than the, than the U.S. And we we sent them cookies, and they're like, "Thanks so much!" And they and they sent us a picture of the cookie. Here, these these were like it was actually like donuts. These were like amazing donuts, right? Like wow. very very fancy donuts. Um, and it really like was such like a boost for for them. And so you know like um, it does make it does go such a long ways. Like little treats, nice little thank you cards, like all those little things that like take just you know a bit of work to kind of pull together and it's not something that's going to be on your performance review, but it really does make such a difference um, for folks. So yeah, those are all great things to do. Yeah. Being nice and using food. That's like the two secret weapons <laughs> yeah. for, you know, the great leaders of the world right there. I, okay. Another quick side story here. When I was an intern working at an engineering company, our boss offered to take us out to lunch every now and then. And he would take us to like Pizza Hut or something, you know, and he would pay for lunch. And usually I, I wouldn't take a lunch break. I would bring some, a sandwich or something in and eat lunch, but I was working the whole time because I was, I was a, a poor student working as an intern and I, I didn't want to take a, an hour off. I just wanted to work and earn my hourly rate, which was like, I don't know, $12 or something wow. like that. Yeah. That's great. So, <laughs> sure. I guess so. So uh, uh, I, I started I, out like $5. <laughs> like, I was well, so I was excited one day when I well got up then. to like $12. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> Luckily, it wasn't $5, but but I remember one day doing the math on this, right? I could take an hour and go out to lunch and have my boss buy me like a $6 personal pan pizza, or I could sit in my seat and earn $12 and just eat whatever I brought, but I always went out to lunch because oh, it was good. like the allure of free food. Oh, I thought... <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, like, well, actually, like the return on investment isn't that high. So I, I just stayed there and I ate my little PB&J and like, hmm. Like, I thought about it. Yeah, back. But at the end of the day, I was like, heck no, man, I'm out of here. Free food, Pizza Hut, wow. I, I'm there. You know Even what? though it made no financial sense. That is that is such an important point, though, especially, well, for younger engineers, but also for like engineers like myself, like it's so easy to get caught up in like our projects and like oftentimes I just crank through my lunch break um, and I don't always go out and talk to people. But that time, just to like go out and say hi to people, I mean, it's so it's so important. And like building those relationships and like having fun at work um, just just makes everything so much better. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear you do that. <laughs> and and um, yeah. I hope other folks kind of follow that example that you set for them. Yeah, it, it was good. I never uh, regretted it, you know. Okay, um, one more question, and then we'll wrap it up here. So engineering a new product is a long, expensive, risky process. 30, 40, 50 years from now, how do you think, or what do you think we'll be doing differently that will have uh, reduced the, the length, cost, and risk of development? Well, I suppose there's a few areas that would make a tremendous impact. Um, one would be in, as you mentioned, better tools to understand your device early on. So I could easily see, 
right? Some systems where you could kind of pull together different types of materials, different drometers of materials, for example, and like test it out in a, in a anatomy, um, you know, a simulated anatomy model and like figure out which one navigates best or kind of like show, then kind of show these really cool models to clinicians or, or, you know, find different ways that you can um, run more scenarios. Like for molding, for example, right, you've got your FEA analysis where you can go in and do like the mold flow and see like where you might have stress points and then change the radius there to improve that. But we don't really have like a really cool system like that that can like simulate use of products in so many different body types, um, which can be kind of a constraint for designers and figuring out like, do we make it big? Um, do we make it tiny maybe for our like pediatrics? Like what's the right size and how do mm. we, you know, best scale the product? So I, I, I definitely see some areas for growth there. I see a lot more automation coming in um, that will improve um, manufacturing. So um, better understanding like how your process is flowing, what areas you can improve on. And then a lot of automation I see. Um, what what out. kind of automation do you see coming? Like everything, Aaron, right? It's all, it's all, um, you know, if you can make your devices more consistently, like that just improves everything in the process. Um, so, so I would anticipate that there would be more tools that would make that design process, that manufacturing process that much easier. And then that allows you to bring those products to market that much quicker. And obviously, um, you know, prototyping um, different technologies and prototyping are still advancing, right? We used to have to like machine everything out of metal. Now you can do yeah. metal injection molding or 3D metal printing, right? So cool. Like, and so I just kind of see those technologies continuing to improve and, and really develop and just give us that much more of a canvas to work as we bring those products to life. Do you think AI will ever get to the point where we just give it some inputs and then it designs the device? Like it defines all the geometry, it designs the mechanisms that allow it to work? Or do you think that's just never going to happen because a machine can never think as intuitively and as thoughtfully as a human? Um, no, I'd, and I would, I would kind of phrase it differently. It's, it's what data you give that can drive those outputs. So I suppose it would be more... Um, a question of could you define those characteristics well enough, those different inputs that you need to design for well enough that you could take all of this data and then like a little robot could be like, this is what you need to make. Um, I, I definitely think it's possible and that would be pretty neat. Um, but it all comes back to the data, characterizing the data, understanding what data you need, understanding what those critical inputs are and how you can go forward. Very good. Well, Liz, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Before I let you go, how can people get a hold of you? Oh, well, Aaron, there was that question, that engineer question. Oh, yes. You you, you have an answer for it. Well, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, I've been trying. Way to multitask. You know All right. I, I think, you know, automation is a really neat area. So I think if I could go back in the past, I'd, I'd probably chat with the folks that were the early pioneers in automation and just kind of see like, why? What made them think of that? Um, and then how did they convince their colleagues that were like, you know, John, you're crazy. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, no, we have, you know, 
Carl and Bob making these products. Right. They've been doing it. He, Carl's been here 20 years. He, you no know, machine's going to do better than Carl. Yeah. You know, it would be neat to, um, to get that perspective, right? Because that's that's always the question, like how do we continuously improve? How do we move things forward, right? Because I feel like the day that you stop thinking about how to improve things is the day that the engineer inside dies. <laughs> and like, how do we how do we just keep moving forward and finding that that path and like being creative and learning more, and then like using all of that experience to just become that much better. So. That's, that's my answer. thought. I don't have a specific person. It. I chat with all of them, <laughs> even though I'm an introvert. <laughs> that would be really interesting because back before automation was a thing, like what, what how would you even think about automation? You know, you, you don't have that paradigm in your mind to even construct a framework around it. Mm -hmm. So how did they even come up with that in the first place? I guess it's like, you know, any, any great inventor, right? Where we have horse and buggies, but I'm going to put an auto automobile in place. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Liz, how can people get a hold of you? Oh, well, Aaron, um, I'm definitely open to chatting with people. Um, they can, LinkedIn is probably the best way for people to reach out to me. So um, if you find Elizabeth Zetel, and that's Z-E-T-T-E-L on LinkedIn, I'll come up. There's not too many. <laughs> it's a unique last name um, for sure. But yeah, just reach out there and I'd be happy to chat with anyone. Perfect. Oh, All and right. then, you know, Aaron, I also wrote a book. I didn't <gasps> mention that. Oh, tell us about the book. I didn't even know. Yeah, well, I, I thought about it when you said that you were kind of interested in in maybe writing a book one day. I wrote a book to pay it forward. Um, so it's called Engineering Pants. And um, this is a great title. I'm interested already. <laughs> it was it was a playoff of Tina's Fay um, book um, there, but uh, yeah, Engineering Pants. It was a book that I wrote to help pay it forward, um, to help guide young high school. Um, students, you know, primarily uh, young women that are, you know, starting to think about like, well, could I be an engineer? Like, what does that look like? What should I do? How should I prepare? Um, so it was written for, you know, high school through students on through college and then early career. And it's just kind of a compilation of different lessons I had learned um, throughout my life and things like that. So Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, and where can people find that book? Oh, you can um, you can get it off Amazon. <laughs> nice. So just yeah. search Engineering Pants by Elizabeth Zettel. Oh, it actually, Amazon. it's it's um, under Liz Larson. Oh, okay. On Amazon. Got it. Yeah, I need to do, I actually, it's it's something I've been thinking about doing is, is doing an update. Um, because I've learned so much more since I wrote that book, you know, so many years ago. Um, yeah, when did you write that book? You know, it was, I, it took me a couple years to put together. I think I finished it in like around 2015. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It might be time for an update. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And there's so much that you learn, right? You just become that yeah. much better. I've actually wanted to reread it and like think back to myself and be like, gosh, Liz, like you really, <laughs> wow, you've learned so much. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else that we should have talked about that we haven't? Oh, you know, just just some advice for folks. I think the the most helpful advice that I've received in my career, because I was always like when I started, I was an engineer. I, you know, like had this whole plan. Like I am, I'm going to start out as an associate engineer, and and then I looked at all of the engineering positions after that, 
at my company and I thought, okay, well, in two years, I'm going to be an E1. And then two years after that, I'm going to be an E2. And then two years, and then in 10 years, I'm going to be a program manager by the time I'm 30. And then <laughs> I'm not done yet. I'm going to go on and become an engineering director by the time I'm 40. <laughs> and I had this had whole plan, right? Yeah. And I worked, I worked really hard and I, I met a lot of those goals. And then I realized along the way, you should throw out those little post-its. Like, do not be like my former self, right? Because you should do what interests you. And that changes along the way. Like I would never have thought when I started out, you know, just right out of school, so excited to work in medical devices that I would be where I am today and that I would have had all of the little career pivots along the way. And it's been a lot more fun since I kind of like freed myself from the, you know, that very rigid career path. Um, and so I really encourage people to do what interests you and that, and just be open to that changing over time because all of those experiences, as you talk with more people, you learn more. And then, and then, as you mentioned, like there's so many different types of engineering. There's so many different ways that you can take your amazing skill sets and your strengths and apply them in a very productive and like fulfilling manner. And so, you know, what you know today is not everything in the world of what you can do or what you can achieve. So I just encourage people to, you know, be open and do what interests you. And then it all kind of works out. I think it all kind of works out. And it's a lot of fun. So, you know, after you mentioned the Tina Fey book, I I just subconsciously now I'm thinking of you as Liz Lemon. <laughs> yes, I actually <laughs> I actually used to get that a bit because I had <laughs> I had glasses like her, and uh, and yes, um, some folks would say that, which was how funny, which was kind of funny, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Liz Zatel, thank you so much for everything you've shared today. This has been awesome. Oh, thanks, Erin. I'm so happy to be here. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.